What comes to your mind when you think of a contemplative? Is it a yogi? Not yogi the bear, um, but yogi, a person who does yoga. Is it a nun? Is it a monk? But what, can you be a contemplative if you're not into yoga? Can you be a contemplative if you're not into Buddhism? Can you be a contemplative if you're not Catholic? Well, I would say in some ways, none of us are contemplatives because of our technology. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm about ready to get a big old bat out, and I'm going to town here for the next couple of minutes. So let me, just give me a second. One of my favorite books uh, that I've read recently is uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I've probably talked about it uh, in sermons before. It's written by a guy named John Mark Comer. And one of the first chapters, he gives a brief history of what he calls speed, not the drug. And uh, he starts his history with a sundial. A sundial uh, was first invented in 200 B.C. Then he moves forward about 1,600 years, and he talks about the first public clock in Germany, 1370. And as he's talking about this first clock, he quotes a historian who summarized the clock, saying, Here was man's declaration of independence from the sun, new proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all its own. In other words, the sun used to set our rhythms of work and rest, but now the clock is in control. And it gets worse than 1370. 1879, Edison invents the light bulb, and it made it possible to stay up past sunset. Before the light bulb, the average person slept 11 hours a night. 11 hours a night. Move forward and we find these labor-saving devices that start doing things for us like laundry machines and dishwashers and toasters. Then in 2007, just a mere 14 years ago, we hit an inflection point. You know what happened in 2007, don't you? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs released the iPhone into the world, and now we have the internet at our fingertips. And here's what Nicholas Carr wrote a book on uh, technology. He was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and here's what he says about the internet. He says, what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes information. Once I was a scuba, a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. End quote. So, after all of this, I hope you see that technology is not neutral. I also hope you hear me say, I'm not getting rid of my iPhone anytime soon. But here's what technology is doing. It's always moving towards easy everywhere, as what Andy Crouch would say. It says that life can be easy. Technology says that life can just work. But it's a lie. Sure, technology is good for some things. It's good for production. It's good for leisure. But it's really bad for creation. And it's really bad for rest. 
So you can't just press a button and create. You can't just press a button and rest. I really wanted all week long just to press a button and this sermon would just happen. But it didn't. It took contemplation. And contemplation takes effort and attention and commitment. And when I need to rest, I can't just press a button and bring my mind and body and spirit to peace. It takes contemplation. And so our passage today, a passage found in Luke as we're going through the gospel, especially the birth narrative, has much to say about contemplation. Let's read it together, starting in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, that's Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for, all, for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The word of the Lord. I want to take each character here and work through them to bring out something about contemplation. The first one, we'll look at Mary. Look at how her contemplation is really about the mundane. Then we'll look at Simeon and see that his contemplation is about understanding the complex. And then we'll look at Anna and we'll see that her contemplation is about reward. Let's start with Mary. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know what's been going on with Mary. You know what's been surrounding her pregnancy. The first thing that happened is that an angel came and appeared to her to announce that she would give birth to the Son of God, even though she is a virgin. The second supernatural thing that happened is that she showed up pregnant with Jesus to be with Elizabeth, her elderly cousin. 
And Elizabeth praises her, saying, Blessed are you among women. Something supernatural. Then at the birth of Jesus, you have these random shepherds just show up out of nowhere because an angel had appeared to them to tell them to come see Jesus in a feeding trough. Miraculous things. And just because she thinks the miraculous is in play here, it doesn't mean that she fully understands what's happening. If you were with us last week, we saw that verse 18 says that Mary treasured up all these things, all these miraculous things, and she pondered them in her heart. And while she's got these displays of the divine, she's also got what seems like a very normal baby. He eats normal, he sleeps normal, he cries normal, he coos normal, he's got normal bodily functions, hate to break it to you. And then she had a really less than normal birth experience where she couldn't even get a proper hotel room. She's got to settle for a barn and a feed trough. And so, yeah, she's pondering. She ponders and she ponders. And she's got to go with the light she has for what it means for her to obey God. And for her, that meant she needed to go about the mundane tasks of faithfulness. And that's what we have listed. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, it says that Jesus was brought to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's normal. It says that they named him Jesus. Well, that's what Mary and Joseph were told to name him. It says that Mary and Joseph had to purify themselves, verse 22. It says that they have to present Jesus to the Lord, verse 22. That's what all children had to do. They had to offer a sacrifice for Jesus, verse 24. Now, all of these things that Mary and Joseph performed were true for all Jewish babies. And so clearly, Mary was doing this hard work of contemplation. She's treasuring these things up in her heart. She's pondering their meaning. But it didn't mean that she just sat in a serene corner deep in thought. She had to do stuff. She obeyed what she knew while seeking to better understand what she didn't know. Say that again. She obeyed what she knew while seeking to better understand what she didn't. So what that means for me and you is that while we're trying to wrestle with who Jesus is, while we're trying to wrestle with the impact that he has on our living and our thinking and our emotions, we don't stay stagnant waiting for the next intense spiritual experience. We just keep walking. We keep walking the path of mundane faithfulness. And for all of us, what that means our whole life long is that we keep sharing our real life struggles with real people asking them to pray for us. It means that we keep showing up for corporate worship so we can feed ourselves with word and sacrament. It means we keep exposing ourselves to the truth of scriptures. It means we keep walking in generosity with our money. It means we keep walking with integrity when it comes to our sexuality. See, you and I, we will always have room to understand more about the Christian faith and how it interfaces with our lives. And it's really easy to get stuck and bypass ordinary faithfulness. And so here at this first Christmas, the first Christmas dignifies the ordinary. And it says that our faith is not just about these extraordinary displays or about these intense spiritual experiences. It says that contemplation is about the mundane. 
But the passage keeps going. And we meet someone else named Simeon. And he shows us what it means that that contemplation is about understanding the complex. If you go back to last week, we saw that the shepherds show up unannounced to Mary and Joseph. This intimate scene, can you imagine uh, if you happen to be a parent now, or you can imagine possibly be a parent in the future, and you're in your, uh, you're in your hospital room, and these strangers come and celebrate the birth of your baby? Well, that's what happened with the shepherds, and now it happens again with Simeon. In fact, it looks like Mary and Joseph are just carrying Jesus through the temple complex when Simeon grabs him from them and blesses God for him. And we don't know a lot about Simeon. But one of the things we're told about him is that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he's waiting for the promised Messiah who would set things right between God and his people. And his waiting has given him these acute sensibilities to what the Messiah would be like. So when he sees Jesus after years of waiting, he's got a message. He's got a message for Mary about the nature of her son and his ministry. And it's highly likely that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel longer than Mary has been pondering these things in her heart. And he's got something that she can learn from. She can learn from his contemplation. And his contemplation has allowed him to harmonize an apparent contradiction. And that contradiction is that God can be both just and merciful. Do you see it in verse 34 and 35? Do you see what Simeon tells Mary about her son? He tells her that her son is is appointed for the rise and the fall of many. Now up to this point, what she knows about her son, this eight-day-old baby that she's carrying around that was born in a feeding trough. Here's what she knows about this little baby. She knows that this little baby is a king. She knows this little baby is the Lord. She knows that this little baby is going to bring peace. But she doesn't know anything about this little baby causing many to fall. This is new news to her. And she hears from Simeon for the first time that there will be some who despise him, who reject him, who stand against him, and who will fall because of him. And Simeon tells Mary that she's going to suffer because of him. You see it in verse 35. It says, a sword will pierce your soul. Well, those of you who are mothers, if you watched your son get killed, a sword would pierce your soul too. So Jesus would cause Mary to suffer. Not just he would bring his king and his his kingship and his lordship and his peace would come without conflict. What Simeon is telling her is that Jesus' life and his mission will always be surrounded with conflict. Now I know it sounds attractive that all will be saved because of Jesus' ministry, but it's just not the case. What Simeon says in verse 35 is that Jesus will expose our hearts. Either Jesus will expose our hearts to be proud, where we don't see our need for forgiveness, where we don't see our need for grace, where we're not humbled by our sin, or Jesus will expose our hearts and we will be humbled by our sin, that we will see our need for grace and we will be drawn to Jesus. 
one group, those who are humbled by their sin, they experience God's mercy. While the other group experiences God's judgment. So, is God merciful or is he just? It seems like a contradiction, but for Simeon, it harmonized for him. That's what his waiting allowed for. That's what his contemplation helped him do. He was able to synthesize all the teachings of the Old Testament, and now he doesn't become overly simplistic. He's now able to hold these things in tension, God's mercy and his judgment. Now maybe, after these last few minutes, you're thinking, all right, Marsh, you've been doing this detailed biblical work. You've been doing this intricate theological study. What does this have to do with me? Well, give me a minute. See, we live in a day when simple sells. Both the right and the left give us simple explanations for everything, and we buy it because it's easy. Or we latch onto formulas, simple ones. We take a class, we get a degree, we take a webinar. We think all these things just bypass the hard work of contemplation. But books and webinars and formulas are usually about acquiring knowledge. And that's not simple. Wisdom is about waiting. Wisdom is about nuance. And nuance allows us to harmonize apparent contradictions, the kinds of apparent contradictions that Simeon has worked out in our text. Let me pause for a moment as we get this place in our sermon. Maybe you've seen that uh, how technology makes contemplation difficult. Maybe you've seen the need for the mundane when it comes to contemplation. Maybe you've seen how contemplation allows you to see the complex, the complexity of Jesus and his mission. And maybe you're utterly ashamed of how addicted you are to your phone. Every Sunday morning while I'm here in church, I get my screen time alert. I get it as I'm walking in, I look at it every week like I can't believe myself. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're ready to throw your cell phone in the river. Maybe you're sitting here, you're ready to say, well, I'm not going to get that extreme, but I'll just lock myself out of Insta for a week. Maybe you're sitting here and you're curious about this mundane living. You're curious about thinking less simplistically. You're ready to change your ways. You're ready to be a 21st century contemplative, and I'm glad. But can I tell you, no amount of curiosity, no amount of inspiration, no amount of shame is going to change you. Your heart will not settle for such imitations. Your heart needs something meatier, something firmer, something more calorically dense. And that's what we see starting in verse 36 with Anna. When you read about Anna's life, in just these few verses, her life seems so sad and pointless, doesn't it? It seems sad because she becomes a widow at such a young age and she never remarries. It seems pointless because all she does for 55 to 65 years is worship, pray, and fast. She doesn't get anything done. So on one hand, you feel sorry for her, while on the other hand, you want to scoff at her for being so utterly useless. But if you read closely this account of Anna, you're intrigued. And you're intrigued because all her worship and prayer and fasting pays off. 
she gets her soul's reward. You see it in verse 38. In verse 38, she sees Jesus and she's so overcome that she breaks out in song and evangelism, just like the shepherds did last week. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we all want. We all want to sing. We all want to be so overcome by something that we break out into song and we want to tell others to experience that which we sing about. Let me give you some examples this week, some non-religious examples of authentic evangelism. I was talking to a young woman this week. Just had uh, her first baby, didn't go to our church. And um, she was just telling me, for, I mean, for minutes and minutes and minutes, how much she loved her minivan. She's not a car dealer. She had no ulterior motive for telling me about her minivan gospel other than just her genuine enjoyment of it. I mean, she was so enlivened by her minivan that if she were a songwriter, she could have written a song. Evangelism, minivan evangelism. Have you ever experienced it? I've experienced it and I've done it, actually. Let me give you another one. One was pickleball. Anybody played pickleball? We got any pickleball players? Even once? Well, I listened to this podcast. It was about pickleball this week. On the podcast, there were three people, three panelists. I don't know what you want to call them. Three podcasters. And one of the podcasters was trying to get the other two people uh, to play pickleball. The other two people had never played pickleball before. And so he was trying to tell them how it worked, why it was, so, why it was such a good thing. And by the end, both of them had committed to try it, and they seemed genuinely excited about it. And by the time that this conversation was over, I had already Googled where the pickleball courts are in Lexington and what gear I needed to get started. See, we all want to be engulfed in joy. We all want to be so engulfed in it that it causes us to sing. C.S. Lewis writes this in his reflections on the song, Psalms about joy. He says, I think we, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good, or she, how good he or she is. It's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent about it. It's frustrating to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Now when you see Jesus, when you see how he sustains you in the mundane, when you see Jesus in all his complexity, that he is neither left nor right, that he's both human and divine, that he's merciful and he's a, the judge, that he is one with the Father and he's separate from the Father as separate persons, then you'll sing and evangelize. you also sing when you cross paths with Jesus in an unexpected fashion. Think about all our characters here. Was Mary asking for an angel? No, it just happened. It just so happened. Anna and Simeon, they'd been waiting. But it just so happened that they ran in to Jesus in the temple. Anna and Simeon just so happened to recognize a normal-looking baby as the Messiah. 
And you have a just-so-happened moment too, don't you? You just so happened to be born in a Christian family when Jesus crossed your path. You just so happened to have a Christian roommate or coworker or neighbor when Jesus crossed your path. You just so happened to open your Bible, listen to a sermon, stumble into church when Jesus crossed your path. And when Jesus crossed your path, you sang. And here's the thing. Jesus wants you to sing your whole life long. He wants to reveal himself to you over and over and over. And every time he does, he's going to give you more to contemplate. And one day, you're going to see him in glory. See, for now, we see Jesus in a mirror as a dim reflection of who he is. But in glory, we'll see him fully. For now, we see him momentarily. But in glory, we'll see him for eternity. For now, we see him with the eyes of faith, but in glory, we will see him face to face. And I pray that this Christmas season, that it gives you time to contemplate. And even more, I pray that Jesus finds you so that you might sing and spread his message. Let's pray.